Films from 1981 with me, Lewis, uh, to episode 21, Blue Tornado. Um, I should start this off by saying it's been a minute. Um, apologies for the lack of any content, as we call it now, I guess. Um, but, you know, life happens, things go on, you know... I know I use that excuse a lot, but it's true, it's just the way it is. Life comes up with all sorts, meaning that you don't get to do certain things when you would like to. So here we are, back again, with the ill behaviour. If you know the reference, good for you. <laughs> but anyway, let's get on with the show. So, like I said, Blue Tornado. It's directed by Antonio Bido or Baido, um, although uh, also known as Tony B. Dodd. <laughs> Sorry, I just love that name. Um, and we'll get to that in a minute. But anyway, cast includes uh, Dirk Benedict, Ted McGinley, Patsy Kensett, David Warren, uh, Christopher, now it's Aaron's or Aaron's. It's A-H-R-E-N-S. You figure it out. Uh, the brief synopsis, uh, two pilots, whilst performing a new flight manoeuvre, encounter a mysterious light, one that appears otherworldly, but what is it? Ah. Now, I just want to quickly say about the brief synopsis there, see when you read it, read synopsises about <laughs> other places, I don't know, it's, they're not very good, but I, you know. Well, 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 uh, this might be explainable when we get into the meat and bones of it. Uh, I'm going to start this review off a little bit differently than usual. I'm going to start with the opening sequence. Because it represents what the film is not. Which seems a bit odd. <laughs> because normally you sit down, the film starts, and within what... You know, I mean, people say, was it within 30 seconds? Is it 30 seconds? You you make a first impression of someone. I think with a film, it might be a bit longer. Maybe give it a couple minutes, maybe five minutes. You know, because if you think about opening sequence, some films have very long opening sequences. Title sequences, sorry, that's what I mean. You know, um, or some films, um, much like the later on James Bond films, where it does have a big opening scene very action oriented and then there's a big long opening sequence and then you actually get into the film so this film, Blue Tornado it um, it seems like it's going to be from the opening sequence a knockoff of Top Gun 
which is very apt considering that obviously the sequel of Top Gun came out this year. Um, too much lauded love and appreciation. I still haven't seen it. I know, shocking, but I did actually really want to see it in the big screen. But like I've said before, life just happens, so you'd never really get round to it. But anyway, um, it's not that though. By the way, it's not a knockoff of Top Gun. It sure seems like it was set up that way anyway um, to lure you in because even if it's a knockoff Top Gun it's a banger so you know what's the harm you know the thing is with this film in particular um, uh, I'm going to be spoiling it quite heavily Um, just because I'll get into you know other stuff about it, but so with the opening sequence, you know, it's a lot of fighter jets, literally how Top Gun opens, except it's not on a aircraft carrier, it's at an air base. You know, you see the planes all move flying through the air on the runway, you know, music over the top, all that. Literally, how Top Gun starts, except it's just planes on an aircraft carrier, lots of people milling about, planes in the air, planes taking off. Soundtrack playing over the top. Well, the fact that Blue Tonero has nowhere near the budget that Top Gun did, presumably. Yes, that's everything. I have no figures for this whatsoever. None. Nor budget, nor box office. Like, not at all. Not even like one of these random ones on Wikipedia that someone just threw out and you're like, how did you manage that? Nothing. So I can't even tell you if it's a TV movie or not. I don't even know that. Um, this is the thing it's like when there's a low budget film well, yeah, well that's a lie with some low budget films from back in the day god I'm saying back in the day from when I was born eh? oh, that's rough anyway um, <laughs> you know it could be a bit tricky to find figures about it because I guess even in the early 90s as much as figures were kept track of Again, still you could say it was kept track of for the more bigger films. You know, for the Terminators. For the, you know, uh, what else? <laughs> That's only for my giving up. For the Terminators, we'll just keep it that. <laughs> um, so, like I said, so as no one did the budget of Top Gun, presumably, and it veers pretty far from the uber military premise of Top Gun that's not to say that there's not it's a military it's a military background you know but it's not like as smashing you in the face as much as Top Gun is with military presence and people and and systems and orders and such um however whatever thing it does share with Top Gear Top Gun see I've abbreviated my notes <laughs> Abbreviated my notes to TG, so slip of the tongue there. I can I I could easily read that as Top Gear. If you don't know what Top Gear is, it was originally a British TV show about cars, um, and then they made an American version and they made an Australian version with different people. Anyway, that's besides the point. It's the sense of PR for the military air force. However, in the Blue Tornado's case. It's NATO forces, 
Um, not nearly as over top as I said, as Top Gun is about the military air force, uh, the US air force, but still doing the job. Um, so you might be wondering, hang on, NATO? Yep, this film is an Italian production, uh, yet starring no Italian actors. It kind of you know of any kind. Um, and if you're wondering what NATO is, I think I was going to say it later on to do with it all. Um, but just I'll just say it now because it makes more sense to say it now, now that I mentioned it. So NATO is basically, it's this is just off the top of my head. I'm not going to do this by taking notes, I decided. So basically NATO is, um, you probably have seen with the regards to Ukraine, the war in Ukraine. Um, that Ukraine wants to be a part of NATO, same as Finland and I think it was Norway. Um, so NATO is basically the like a conglomerate of the European military forces um, come together. So basically means that they share. You can share resources, um, whether that's you know tactically. Um, or gear, or money, or what have you, and also it's uh, it's his own independent force as well. So you like with this film, they're part of the NATO forces. They're not part of the, you know. It's not like the German military. It's not the Slovenian military. It's just the NATO forces. It's a bit like how there's like UN peacekeeping stuff and all that. Um. So yeah. I need to look, I'll look up the abbreviation and uh, say what it is, because I didn't even look it up. Even though I did, well, I do have a second hand, I once got a second hand NATO military jacket, which I was very proud of actually. Still got it somewhere, tucked away, but um, I loved it, I thought it was great. It was right old school as well. But anyway, again, besides the point, oh, it's been a while. So, like I said, it's filmed in Italy quite clearly and it's it is an Italian production but like I said there's no Italian actors in it whatsoever as in speaking roles there probably are extras in the back it kind of hark back, harks back to a time when spaghetti westerns were being made at a prolific rate and, um, quick history lesson so spaghetti westerns are so called because during the 60s and 70s uh, to keep production costs down, and off the success of such directors as Sergio, Sergio Leone, um, westerns were made in Italy. Um, films included the Dollar Trilogy, so that's like um, for a few dollars, for a few dollars more, The Good, Bad and the Ugly, then you've got uh, Gunfight at High Noon, uh, The Big Gun Down, and there's loads like there's teeming amounts of it. I actually didn't think there was that many. I know like the good band the ugly, that's like absolute classic obviously and then there's like the man with you know that's the whole the man with no name with Clint Eastwood and that. Um but yeah you know and I love that though because I love Italy. I love that um grounding gritty sort of style of that era era, sorry. Now, does this film have any of that? A wee bit, but not massively. Mainly because its editing is rather harsh. 
So you're not allowed to sit in, air quotes, scenes and fully ingest in it. Now, I think I've probably talked about this before when it comes to editing. Um, but before I get into the editing of this film, I'm actually going to get into the editing of Spaghetti Westerns. So, so there's a sort of correspondence, if you so will. So in Spaghetti Westerns, it's, I'll, I'll do from the ones I've seen. So especially Good and Bad and the Ugly, there's a particular scene between the literal, the good, the bad and the ugly. So the good is Clint Eastwood, the bad is Lee Van Cleef, and the ugly is, I can't remember his name, that's terrible. But anyway, so it's basically the classic Mexican standoff. There's three of them, all stood in a triangle, facing each other, gun pointed at one another, and you know, and they and it's all about the tension, right? So how do you build tension? Well, you don't just cut a thousand million times, chicka 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 to build tension because you you don't have anything to focus on, right? Tension is all all about holding that shot, holding that look, holding that position, and letting people feel that they can't get out of this situation. So. That's not to say there's editing within those holding shots. So, for example, there's a whole thing where it focuses on each of their eyes because, you know, the eyes are swiveling, looking at each other. But, you know, you just focus on the eyes and you just cut between each eyes. When I'm talking about editing harsh, I mean, it would be like, so those three are stood there. They just, they just appear, all three of them. And they just pull out their guns and they're just stood there. And all of a sudden... It cuts, and it's the very next day, and they're all sitting around having coffee at a diner. Now, I know it's Western times, so there probably ain't such a thing as a diner, and knowing how the film goes, they wouldn't be doing that, but that's what I'm saying. It, sometimes you'd just be like, wait a minute, how did we get from there to there? Whoa, you know. You know, I get this. I get time constraints in, in Blue Tornado, but it did feel like some things could have been sacrificed. There are moments within scenes where they unnecessarily focus on people's reactions, but they're not reacting. So this is exact. This great. This fits in exactly. I wasn't actually gonna. Didn't think this was. I just sort of riffed that whole good, bad, and the ugly thing. But it's actually it's brilliant. So there's a scene where um, Dirk Benedict, who we'll get to later on, is the central character. He's basically informing. I think it's six other guys. Six other pilots. Uh, well, three other pilots and three navigators, I think, is what the chat is. He's discussing to them the mission at hand, right? And he's got this, like, uh, model of the landscape, which is pretty cool, by the way. Model landscape, and he's telling each of them what their job is and what they're to do and whatever. And then there's a moment, right, where he's finished... He, he says something like... I can't remember what the line is, but it's something like, you know, oh... Look, no horsing around. This is serious business. We can horse around afterwards. You know, are you all up to it? Now, at this point, if you, if, you know, in those situations, you're thinking, okay, they can have this face of like the steely determination and they're going to do a nod or, you know, they're going to be like, yeah, they'll go rile right up and go, or, you know, the hoorah thing that the Marines do or whatever. But they're acting like one of them has farted. And none of them wants to own up to it. So they keep a stone face 
so as not to give it away. But then they focus on each person's. They, only, they but they focus on each person for obvious dramatic reason, but it just ain't there. So they, so whilst they're all this stone face like, well, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. You know how you are at school when it's like, you know, someone's flicked, you know, like a pea shooter or whatever, the back of the teacher's head whilst they're like scribbling on the board or whatever. They turn around and they go, who did that? Everyone just suddenly shoots their hands down below the desk. It's just like, you know, silent. And their face is just plain. They're doing that. They're focusing each of them's faces. And it's just like, mate, I'm not getting anything from this. I won't get anything from this. It was just a bit like, we didn't have to do that. We didn't need that. If That's the thing. It's like, if you look at that and you want to have a, a tight run, if you want a tight timeline film, just have him say the bit where it's like, look, no horses around, this is serious business, yeah, yeah, yeah. You go, you go, right, let's go. And then you could just cut it there. Because it's not like they're really contributing much after he says that. And then, you know, and we get it, they're off to go on a mission, it's very serious. Okay, on we go. Now, I'm going to say this again. But it's still true. But this would be great as a TV series and maybe multiple ones of that as in you know series 1, series 2, series 3 because without spoiling the end which I actually might spoil at the end of this podcast episode so bear with there's like so much left unanswered which would be great to explore further also, because of the harsh editing and tight running time, there's quite a few loose ends. Um, and also, there's the there's also the wee shame that it's not the most exciting film. But just to pause there, when I say loose ends, I mean there's some stuff where I'm like, wait, so what happened to that guy? Wait, why? What's the conspiracy behind that then? Well, wait a minute. If that happened, then what's going to happen after? How are they going to explain it all when they get back? And they're like, how the hell are you here? <sighs> I, know I, I, look, I know I've said it all the time that, oh, this one could be a great limited series, this and that, and, but I'm like, but it would, because you get to fully invest writing-wise and time-wise into storyline. Whereas in the film, you're constrained to, well, this is an hour and 27, and about... 10 minutes of that, I swear it's about 10 minutes, is an opening sequence to, you know, planes at night, planes during the day, planes, 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 no automobiles <laughs> or trains. Um, sorry, if you can hear my dog licking his nose, that's because my dog's licking his nose. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, so let's get to the kind of biggest issue with this film. Which is that, and it's a wee shame, but it's not the most exciting film. Like I say, there's two segments of fight or plane action in the beginning and in the third act, sort of the start, it's kind of like the start of the third act, I would say. Um, now, it's clearly low budget, so you can tell when it cuts away to like very clearly inset cockpit shots. So, for it, like, um, and when I say that, I mean like, so you know, somebody's flying a fighter jet, you know, that's my best sound effect. And then 
it cuts to clearly like Dirk Benedict flying. Now, it's not that the shot is within the cockpit, it's from just outside. And you can tell that the motion is all him. It's not the plane's motion, it's all him moving his head. And you can tell that the backdrop is painted. Because it's very, very still. Now, don't get me wrong, like I say, it's low budget and I totally get it. But, the way, I don't know. I feel like you could have been a little bit more creative with that. And it kind of takes you out a bit. Like, don't get me wrong, I love that. I say don't get me wrong a lot, don't I? Anyway, 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 anyway. There's a lot of, you know, with low budget films, that's the, you know, that's the joy of it, right? It's the creativity with the lack of funds and resources, but being able to still make something that's exciting and interesting and intriguing. And sometimes it's just nice just to laugh at, right? Just to laugh with it almost. Like, oh, you know, they knew, right? They knew that it was low budget. They knew that it was going to look silly, but haha, you know, that's the fun of it. Um, but at the same time, especially when it's supposed to be a tense-ass moment, kind of does take you out of it a bit. And as well as that, there's also when it cuts away to shots wide angle of the of the fighters, fighter planes flying, that is model and puppet work. Now, they're very brief, but there's one in particular... Where <laughs> the plane generally looks like. <laughs> Sorry, it's just so funny to think about it. So you know how in like, like if you watch, if you ever watch Thunderbirds or Captain Scarlet, that was my personal favorite. I love Captain Scarlet. The theme tune is an absolute banger. Um, but you know how you know they would make the people, they would make the puppets like walk, and they would go do 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 one way, and they go do 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 another way. Hopefully that makes sense. <laughs> but you know it's that it's very that very staccato walk where you can only really get with a puppet. Because there's not a fluid motion with a puppet, right? You can try and make it as fluid as possible, but it's very staccato in its movement. But then when they would show the, like, anything flying, it was always when it got hit by, so if it was like a plane or whatever flying, and it got hit by something, it would suddenly, like, sway side to side, and, like, loop around and round. Well, this is what happens in this, in Blue Tornado. But it's so brief like you can clearly tell because no plane moves. It's like if you um, grab a like a a gumball or a gobstopper, right? Hopefully, he knows what these are. Um, it's like if you get a bowl and you get your gumball or your gobstopper and you drop it down one side and it goes up the other side and it goes down and up and down and up and down. And up. It was like that. It just was like whoa, 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 whoa. And I'm like, no plane goes like that. Not that I know of. Like, it was so wacky, but, and again, it was so brief, it was like, and then gone. But again, it kind of takes out, you just make, it makes you laugh, it's like, this is so funny, what's going on? Because then it cuts to the cockpit shot, and Dirk Benedict is still as anything. And I'm like, well, that's clearly not happening, in his plane, anyway. But anyhow, so again, it kind of takes you out of the tension of it. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that, there's nothing really terribly wrong with that. But, you know, it still, you know, takes you out of it. But aside from all that, you know, the the rest of the film could, could have been so much more intriguing and mysterious. So, at this point, you might think, I didn't enjoy it. But I did, because they tried. And you can see where it could have been stretched out and made into an excellent limited series, exploring all the military intrigue, 
especially NATO. A little, like I said before, which is you know a unified military European endeavor. Then there's the potential of a world, other worldly things going on. And spoilers now. I'm going to spoil the film royally here. So one, two, three. You know the other things they could you know explored on is like being a father figure. For the family of your seemingly dead friend and fellow pilot, and more spoilers, one, two, three, who then comes back, but from where? So this happens right at the end of the film. I'm spoiling the end of the film, so apologies. But this happens right at the end of the film. So is this mysterious light behind the mountain? Eventually, Dirk Benedict gets to the crest of this mountain. And I'll get into the getting to the mountain part, because that is hilarious. Um, anyway, so he gets to the mountain, and there's the shining light, and then, out of the light is a figure, it's, you know, like a shape, and I was like, oh, here we go, it's going to seem like it's him, you know, the missing pilot, his friend, father of that family, but then it'll appear that he's actually an alien, or some other being, or, or, it'll be like, that is seemingly him. But then, right at the end, it'll twist, and they'll, like behind his eyes will change color. Without where when Dirk Benedict turns away, but then there's none of that. He just goes, "Oh my God, you survived! Oh my God, you survived! <gasps> Come on, let's go! Come on, let's go!" And he stops the pilot lad, uh, who's I think McGinley is. Uh, yeah, Ted McGinley plays him. I can't remember his character's name. He turns around and he looks at the mountain for a bit. After the light sort of dissipates. He's just looking, he's looking, he's looking, and Dirk Benedict goes, what? And it's that classic reaction sort of answer, you're like, oh, well, no, nothing, it's fine. I just thought, no, nothing. No, that classic thing, and you're like, wait, what? Wait, no, and then it literally ends there. It literally ends there. And this all sounds so exciting and intriguing, doesn't it? But it's played so nonchalantly that where and when you should be really caring you just well don't because you're I mean I care because I hate I and I, I can't stress this enough I really hate when stuff ends not necessarily without a payoff because in films it's like oh you're left like in horror films you're left with like a mystery you know you're left to ponder after you left the movie screen say or after you've watched it at home you're left to go oh what do you think that ending meant it's more annoying for me when it's TV series that have obviously been cancelled, but they didn't know that, so they ended it on a cliffhanger. I've got two, but that's for another time. That really, like, pissed me off. But this one, I'm like, oh my god, there was so much there. They could have made a sequel, which was even more low budget, which is like, what the hell was all that? Sorry, I'm getting very, funnily enough, excited about it. But it's about the thought of what it could be, rather than what it is. Um... So yes, like given more time and probably money, this could be an excellent piece of work. And I also put this nonchalant sort of nonchalantness, I should say, to some of the performances. Now, I'm not an actor, so I can't really talk, to be honest, about the um, about what where the, where they could have taken their performance. But just as as a mere watcher of films, um. Here's my thoughts. So Dirk Benedict, if you don't know, is uh, Face 
from the A team. And if you're like, face? Well, if I remember rightly, his whole gimmick was that he was like the in disguise guy. You know, he could change his face. And it's not in the cool way. Well, it's still cool, obviously, but it's not like Clayface from Batman, where he can literally mold his actual face into various faces. It's more that he just is very good at wearing masks. And he's very good at um, doing accents and voices. Um, and he was also in the original Battlestar Galactica film as well. So if you're a big fan of that, then, you know, there you go. Anyway, so, so like I said, uh, I think very much earlier, he's the central star. And he brings charm and suaveness. However, when it gets to, like, dramatic moments, it's just not quite there and like I said, I ain't no actor, so, you know, I, but I still didn't really feel like I could truly invest in the performance. There was times where it was almost like, it's kind of funny, actually. I know I mentioned Top Gun, Top Gun, not Top Gear. Um, you know, I mentioned that it was, you know, there's similarities at the beginning, but actually, think about it. There was almost a level of him trying to do a Tom Cruise, because Tom Cruise can do that whole... You know, he throws a cheeky smile, you know, that glint in his eye when he's trying to be, you know, cocky or whatever. But we all know that he brings a, f a hell of a lot of intensity to roles, like a ton of intensity, you know. So even in moments where it's supposed to be funny, he's really intense. Um, but where, that, where Tom Cruise is bringing the intensity to really push through that this is a dramatic moment above all else, Dirt Benedict's much more laid back. It's much more like, oh, well, they'll get from what I say and from the opposite performance across from me. Whereas I like, well, no, it's a two-way street here. It's not a one-way street. And then David Warner um, is David Warner. Now, I'm not actually going to tell you the two films I put I wrote down that he's in because one I'm going to tell you one of them. One of the, the other one though is from '91, and well, that's saved for much later in this podcast because it's very dear to my heart. Um, and if you know, you know. If you don't, well, you'll soon find out easily, really. But he was the main villain. Yeah, he was the main villain, Tron, which is one of my all-time favorite films. So I love him for that and the other film. Um, but yeah, you know, David Warner has this very like, it's almost a, like a Shakespearean sort of level of villainous quality about him. And this, he's not really a villain, he's more just the higher up. Um, he's, Dirk Bennett's immediate superior. Um, but there's, you know, a feeling still that there's a little, that it's a little phoned in. You know, it's not full David Warner. Like, it, he's still doing what he needs to do, but, again, it's just a bit like, oh, he could have just pushed it a little bit. And then you got Pansy, Patsy Kensett, who's actually rather good in this, um, as well as the little kid who plays the um, the child of Dirk Bennett's, uh, of Tim McGinley's character. But they get little screen time at all, really. But they're both great. Patsy Kensett, you know... It's kind of casting the classic, you know, oh, she's a bit bookish and, oh, she's interested in, like, you know, UFOs and stuff. Like, what's all that about? But, you know, she brings, like, both a sincerity 
and also a steely determination to her role. And the kid's great. The kid's got him given barely any lines, but the way he delivers it, there's one in particular, which is actually really heartbreaking the way he delivers it and the way he says it. But, you know, again, barely any time. Um, and then we'll uh, touch on some last things before we get into the, you know, star rating and all that. Um, the, the music is so late 80s, it's great. Uh, you find a lot that music towards the end of a decade bleeds into another. It's one of the best parts about this film, actually. It, right at the top of the film, right at the start, goes right into a song where you're like, is are you sure this is not from like at least 1985 to 86, 87 maybe? Um, but it's great. It's really, really good. Now, the other things I want to quickly, briefly mention. So, the climb of the mountain scene with the dad of Ted McGinley, so Dirk Benedict's pilot friend, is absolutely hilarious because, okay, i have got to be spoiling it again, but basically Patsy Kent is like, I need to come up to the mountain with you. And Dirk Benedict literally just says, no, I need to do this by myself. And then he manages to drag his seemingly dead friend's dad along for the ride. I'm like, well, there's so much for, I'm going to do it by myself. I need to do it by myself. I really need to do it by myself. It has to be by myself. Do you not understand? It's all by myself. Oh, wait, I'm going to bring my dead pal's dad. Sorry, what? No, so, so his dad used to be a mountaineer. Fair. But why are you just ask him advice and get the gear off him? Because that's the other thing. The dad goes with all the gear. Dirt Benedict goes literally in jeans, regular ass shoes, and a pilot leather, a leather pilot jacket. That's it. That is literally all he takes. I'm like, so the poor old guy is having to take, you know, a big old bag, beanie, you know, fully wrapped up. And, you know, again, the spoiler, basically the old dad gets injured Right? And so Dirk Bennett has to continue on. So I'm like, oh, Dirk Bennett's going to take the bag from him. Right? He's going to go on. Because the dad's like, you go on, you go on, it'll be fine. No, Dirk Bennett just goes, all right, see ya. Does he take the bag or nothing with him? He just keeps on going. And supposedly he reaches the mountain absolutely, you know, without a mark on his body. I know that, like, you maybe ran out of time and maybe you just thought, well, he's a hero, and you, well, we're not bothered with that. But my God, I was like, either he is the best ever mountain climber, because this is, ain't no walking apart mountain, by the way. But anyhow, another thing I should mention is that at the end of the film, it thanks the Aeronautica military. So I guess that's like the Italian arm of the Na of NATO. So there was actual genuine fighter plane flying and movement in there, so that's pretty cool. And I will just briefly say that the, the ending is so anticlimactic. I pretty much spoiled the ending, but there's a particular moment, and I'm not going to ruin that because you have to witness it. It's to do with the light behind the mountain, and the mission that Dirk Bennett's got him and a bunch of other pilots to do is, and again, you know, budget constraints I get, but it is really quite funny because you're kind of a bit like, this is it, right? So this is what the light actually does. If what it does is, I don't know, what is it? Uh, you know, so yeah. It's a bit. Uh, it's a bit of a bummer, really. So I gave it. Actually, I'll give you the best line, best scene before I give you my star rating and, and my feelings of the film overall. So the best line, well, it's best lines. So this is actually a conversation between Dirk Benedict and David Warner's character, and it's basically David Warner trying to understand what actually happened up in the sky when Ted McGinley disappeared, right? So 
and you know how I am when it comes to reading these. I'm not very good, so I'll do my best. I'm not good to do accents, or should I do accents? I'll try to do accents. <laughs> I'll try. This makes it for fun. Okay, here we go. Um, the light was unearthly. Bullshit. What do you mean, unearthly? An unidentified flying object, for Christ's sake. UFOs. I don't know how else to say it. It goes on, but you get the impression. I don't know what I was doing for David War there about the bullshit line. I totally mucked that up. He doesn't sound American at all. Oh, well, that was my, that was the most terrible David Warner I think you probably ever hear. And then the best scene is, so when I said about the anticlimactic ending, right before the whole light thing with the mountain, which is like dodgy, the flying to the mountain that's the best scene because they do shots where they're going down ravines, under a bridge, over a dam, and that's really cool. That generally looks really great. Even if it's model work, it looks very like Star Wars-esque. Not to the, you know, not to the quality of what Star Wars, you know, flying over the Death Star and all that was, but it still was, it still is really great, actually. And it kind of, again, it's like, oh, we could have really pushed that, right? But anyway, so I gave it two and a half stars. I was going to give it three, but there was so much that could have been done with this that just wasn't. So this, I feel, would be a great film for people learning to do rewrites and adaptations, to take in and learn how you go about it. And it's also, if for, for viewing purposes, it's good background stuff, I'd say. It's like a film where you don't really need to pay too much attention. But also, it's like, just a great film to have a laugh at. It's very, you know, it's short, it's like an hour, 27 minutes. And when I say about learning how to do rewrites and adaptations, I mean, you could watch this and be like, oh, well, if, I, if we adapted it, we could take it this and do that, or... You know, if we rewrote it, this character would do this instead of that. It's like, it's very much like a sort of, it's like a basic square. And then you can go in and be like, well, let's make it hexagonal. I'm just saying. Now, let's go to the, now, like I said, there's no monetary digits here anywhere. So, I can't give you those. I can give you what the thoughts and feelings of people around the internet was. So... And IMDb uh, it was getting a 4.1 out of 10, just below, you know, half decent, which, um, and then you got 2.9 out of 5 on Letterboxd, again, you know, well, that's actually just over half, liked it, um, on Blu-ray.com, 6.7 out of 10, that's pretty high, and then Google users, 91, I'm not even kidding, 91% liked it. Who knew? It's so fascinating. I just find it fascinating. So, yeah. Oh, and I was going to... I forgot to say about the director's name. So, like I said right at the beginning, that his name is Antonio Bido, but for this, he's credited as Tony B. Dodd. And that happens a lot. I'm not going to go into full into why. I don't know why he particularly done that. Um, But, yeah. And also, I will say that after 91... He had nine years or so where he didn't make, well, seemingly didn't have anything to do with filmmaking at all. Um, so I hope this, it wasn't because this was a horrible experience. And yet he put his own, he put a different name to it. But hey, there you go. So thanks so much again for listening and your patience above all else. Next time we'll be doing Toy Soldiers, not the Toy Toy one, the other one. 
Uh, but until then, cheerio and take care. Presented here by Lewis.